Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we're so humbled and thankful to know that you love us and you chose us. And that you've called us into a relationship with you. Yet we go our own way and do our own thing. And even the times when we are walking with you. Life happens and circumstances come against us. Our fears and anxieties get the best of us. And we may grow restless. Father, I pray an echo of the song Jessica sang. That we would rest in you. That in the midst of the trials of this life. With all that we fear. And all that is real against us. All the challenges we face we would seek to rest in you. That we would become, as our scripture today says, prisoners of hope. A hope that is sure and certain because it is found in the sovereign God of the universe. Thank you, God, for your love for us. We pray your blessing as we study your word. May we hear from you today by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you haven't opened your Bibles already, please join me in Zechariah chapter 9. If you're not sure where Zechariah is, you're welcome to look in your index or in the front of your Bible. Or uh, maybe just if you know where Matthew is, go to Matthew and swing a left a few pages into the Minor Prophets. And you'll get to Zechariah chapter 9 verse 1. And we'll cover today a longer passage of Scripture through chapter 11, verse 17. So if I counted right, 56 verses of Scripture, so buckle up. We may not read every one of them, um, but we'll uh, see again the depth and the sovereignty of God that just amazes me. Because friends, I'd never studied the book of Zechariah at this depth before. Yes, I've read through it, you know, even devotionally. But to study it for a sermon is a different thing. And to see again and again and again, every verse in the book of Zechariah is loaded with symbolism, with imagery, with reference to Judah's past and, uh, you know, foreshadowing of the future. And it just amazes me. Now, to set us up for this sermon today, which I've entitled Rule, i.e. God's Rule, uh, I need to tell you a little bit about my life. Um... My dad is, uh, um, you know, well, some of you have met him. He's been around here before. He's in his 70s now. He doesn't look like it, uh, doesn't act like it, and that's good. But as a child growing up, you know, my dad was my dad, man. You know, dads are kind of cool, and you look up to him, and he would play catch with me and, you know, coach some of my sports teams and take me to ball games, and we watched PBS specials about animals. And, you know, these were the things my dad and I did together. And he showed me how to do some dad stuff, you know, how to do this on the car and how to do this around the house and all that kind of stuff. And somewhere along the way, 
I got to thinking, however, that my dad was not cool, that my dad was not smart, and it probably happened when I was about a preteen, right? And I'll never forget that I went uh, in the summer of my 13th year, now I sound old when I say it that way, when I was 13 years old, during the summertime, went with my dad to work. He was an aircraft mechanic for Delta Airlines. And so the planes do most of their flying during the day, so the guys work on the planes at night. My dad said, by the way, if you took care of your car like they take care of those airplanes, your car, your passenger car, would last 60 or 70 years because the amount of maintenance they do to those. Of course, our cars don't fly in the air where you could, but that's another story. And so I can distinctly remember this time when I was 13 years old, walking uh, around my dad's work with him, because that was the days before 9-11 when they would let you know, family members go to places where airplanes are worked on and you know, hang out for the night. So I'm a 13-year-old walking around with dad, and I distinctly remember trying to stump him, trying to ask him questions to find the holes in his knowledge because I thought I was smarter than him. That, you know, the guy that's been an aircraft mechanic for how many years is dumb and I'm a 13-year-old, or at least I can ask questions he doesn't know the answer to. And again and again, no matter what airplane I asked about, no matter what system of the airplane I asked about, he knew the answer, or at least he knew part of the answer, and he would say, oh, let's go talk to so-and-so. He'll know the rest of the answer. He's an avionics specialist. Or this guy over here, he's a sheet metal specialist. And he took me to guy after guy and answered my questions, and I was just blown away. Not only did my dad, this blue-collar guy with, you know, grease in his fingers and calloused hands, know all this stuff. He knew everybody else that knew all this stuff. That was a change in my relationship with my dad. I grew more respectful for my dad, and I thought, man, he stays up five nights of the week And then two days of the week, tries to turn around and act normal like the rest of us. No wonder he's grumpy sometimes. I mean, I had this realization that I should cut my dad a little slack. He works hard in here. And I don't know if you know, but the um, fuel uh, tanks of airplanes are in the wings of the airplanes, right? My dad's a skinny guy like me. And on a routine basis, because my dad was a skinny guy, he'd have to put on this full suit with a breathing apparatus and crawl down through this little hole just big enough to fit his shoulders through and do a visual inspection of the fuel tanks inside the wings of airplanes. When I learned that that night, I was even more blown away. I thought, I can't imagine doing that. But my dad does that to put food on our table? What a terrible job to crawl around in a little space like that. I'd freak out and die. But my dad did it. I'm just giving you an example of how, as you grow in your own maturity, you realize things about your parents or other people you know. And I think there's something that happens to us as children when, as teenagers, we think our parents are stupid, but we know we've grown up when everything we thought our parents said or did was stupid immediately becomes brilliant. We're like, That's why they were saying that. That's why my mom and dad always told me that. Well, they were wiser than you thought. You were just a teenager and you were more foolish than you thought. Can I get an amen? In our relationship with God like that, it may not be one point in time like that night in the aircraft hangar with my dad when I was trying to stump him and ask him questions and I learned that he crawled around in the fuel tanks of airplanes. It may not be one night, but somewhere along the way, we grow up 
in our relationship with God. And we realize who God is and what he has done for us is so much more than we previously imagined. Why? Because we were being selfish and doing it our own way before, and we didn't care. I didn't think about how food got on my table or how the house got paid for until I saw what my dad did to take care of us. Friends, when we look at a book like Zechariah, We could just say, well, these are old kind of sounding words, and we don't know these people, and we don't know these places. And yes, even at the speed we're going to cover it today, I'm not going to go into depth in all these names and all this history. I'm just going to make some broad statements to you and trust that you trust me because I'm a trustworthy person and know that you can go study it deeper if you want to. But it amazes me. That even though in our book of Zechariah, what happens here in the beginning of chapter 9, if your Bible is like mine, you know, you've got uh, everything written like in paragraph fashion in chapter 8. And then chapter 9, you get it where it's indented a lot, right? It's kind of like poetry. It's because there's been a change here. There's a shift between the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9. And you notice your Bible, probably like mine, has a title. In the beginning of chapter 9, it says, An Oracle. And if you look at the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1, it says, an oracle. So what you have through chapter 9, through chapter 14, the last five chapters of the book of Zechariah are two big oracles. What's an oracle? Well, it's not a company that makes technology stuff. An oracle is like a cool figurative story that you go, oh, okay, there's some deeper meaning there. I'm sure I could define it better if I went to dictionary.com, but it's an oracle. So this is in Zechariah's parlance. He's like preaching a sermon to the people. But there's been another change here. Not only is it an oracle, but where he's been dealing with the past. Now, even though he mentions the past, he's looking towards the future. And what he's preaching is an apocalyptic style about what is yet to come, even though he references what has already happened. So what you're going to see in these three chapters we take up today is different slightly than what we've seen in the past. It's a bit um, enigmatic, a bit confusing. You know, they were your obedience to build the temple was symbolic of your obedience in other areas of your life. And this was emblematic of your relationship with God. Build the temple, obey God. That's what they were told. It was easy. Respond to his love, be in a relationship with God, because God, as I said before, pursues a continual love relationship with us that is real and personal. If you didn't write that down last week or the week before that or the week before that, write it down now. God pursues a continual love relationship with me that is real and personal. It's continual, it's real, it's personal. And that's what Zechariah is talking about here. Yes, he is talking to his uh, people, Israel, But as the way God and His sovereignty has recorded Scripture, it has absolute import for us today as well. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, is a listing of Israel's enemies. Notice what it says. It says, The word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and the rest upon Damascus. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, and upon Hamath, to which borders on it, and Tyre and Sidon, though they are very skillful. And what happens in these verses, verses 1 through 8, is it's almost as if God, telling Zechariah what to say, is reciting a list of enemies of Israel from the north down to the south. Boom, 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 boom. It's just like if you looked at a map and you said, 
Here's what I don't like about Canada. Here's what I don't like about North Dakota. Here's what I don't like about South Dakota. You're just working your way to Nebraska, right? And look at verse 8. Look at what he says. But I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. God either caused or allowed all the bad guys in verses 1 through 7 to do exactly what they did to his people Israel to get their attention or to judge them. But did you hear the change that God announces in verse 8? He says, they're not going to get you anymore. I am keeping watch. Can I get an amen? For now I am keeping watch. The first point on your outline today is that God restores his people. God restores his people. He's recounted in verses 1 through 7, here's all the people that did stuff to you. Here's all the bad stuff they did to you. Much of it's symbolic and again quite quick. But he's getting to how he restored his people. This is parallel to chapter 1 verses 1 through 6. Let me just share with you again three quotes from that sermon. Dr. James Merritt said, It's one thing to know Jesus, it's quite another to make him known. It's about seeking to restore others. Pastor Steve Dighton said, The only commodity we have is relationships, and God is pursuing a relationship with us. And He wants that relationship to be restored, no matter what the sin, no matter what the fault, that He has even given Jesus to die on a cross for us. To restore that relationship. Dr. Rodney Harrison said. God loves us so much. That he won't let us go through life. With unreconciled relationships. God is out to restore his relationship. With his people. And here's our question. How has God cared for me? When you think about your life. And personal application. Of the ideas of these first eight verses. You have to ask. How has God cared for me? What have I seen in my life that God has done for me that would demonstrate to me that he loves me, that he cares for me, that I am his child? I pray that you can say something. I pray that you can say, I know I trusted Jesus as my Savior at this point in time or around this date. And I've seen him answer prayers here. And I've known his presence here. And again and again and again and again through your life, you can make a list of how God has cared for you. Friends, if you cannot do that, One of two things. One, either you're not a believer in Jesus and you need to make sure about that. Or two, you haven't taken the time to prayerfully think about it. So if it's number one, today you have an opportunity to trust Christ as your Savior. At the end of my sermon, we're going to stand up and sing a song. We're going to do a gospel invitation and you can respond to the message that you're a sinner, that Jesus saved you because God loved you. And you can have your life changed just like that. But if it's the second and you're a believer in Jesus, and you know that, but you don't have a list of instances where you knew God showed up and cared for you, I'm going to ask you to do that. You have some homework this sermon. Okay, everybody take out your pen, write on your thing, I have homework. Nobody's writing. Miss Kathy Beverly's writing. Thank you, Kathy. Somebody's paying attention to me over here. You have homework, and your homework is to write a list. Think about how cool it will be if you take an hour of time or two hours of time and you write a list of how God has blessed you in your life. I mean, I'm not giving you homework that's hard. I'm going to give you homework that you're like, wow, this is cool. I just said cool. 
in an odd voice. All right, let's move on. Verses 9 and 10. Just two verses, but these verses, you've heard them before. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Sound like anything we've heard when Jesus was announced? I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. God is announcing His Son, our Savior, Jesus. And the second point in your outline is that God returns to His people. God says, hey, listen, you guys were away from me. All these bad things happened, but I'm going to send you a Savior, and this is going to be the sign of who the Savior will be. This is a prophecy of Jesus, one of these things that you cannot make up. Because God loves us, He sent Jesus for us. We like to second-guess God's love for us, our shame and guilt And certainly the devil, the evil one, the liar. But I want to quote my friend Carl Brown. And I've quoted him before on this one because I love it. I cannot do anything that will make the Lord love me more. I cannot do anything to make him love me less. Friends, Jesus loves you. You can't do anything to make him love you anymore. You can't do anything to make you, him love you any less. He loves you with a perfect love. And because he loves you, God has sent him to provide for us a way for salvation. And it's prophesied right there in verse 9 and verse 10 of who he is and of what he will do. He is the king that is prophesied here. And I just answered your question for you. Who has God sent for me? All right, everybody say it out loud. Who's God sent for me? Oh, come on. Who is God sent for me? You know the story. I've said it before, right? Pastor sitting down on the steps, telling a children's sermon to the kids gathered around him, and he's describing something that is fluffy and has a tail and gathers nuts and lives in a tree. And a little boy raises his hand and says, Pastor, it sounds like a squirrel, but the answer must be Jesus. Friends, the answer to that one is Jesus. Who has God sent for me? Jesus. This is one of hundreds of scriptures that prophesy in the Old Testament, hundreds if not thousands of years before Jesus came, that this is what he's going to look like and how you can identify him. Blaise Pascal, thinker, philosopher, said this. There are only two kinds of men. The righteous who believe themselves sinners... And the rest, sinners who believe themselves righteous. The righteous who believe themselves sinners, is that you? You know that you're a sinner, but you've been saved by God's grace and your righteousness is imparted through Jesus. The righteous who believe themselves sinners and the rest are sinners who believe themselves righteous. That's pride. That's a sin. We all need a Savior. 
All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus sent his, or God sent his son, Jesus, to save us from our sins. And he's returning to us to restore that love relationship that our sin has broken. The third major point on your outline this morning is that God shares with his people. God shares with his people. Now, this is kind of an odd word to put in there, but I, I could use a fancier word. But I, I try to use words most of the time that we can all understand that don't sound too highfalutin and you don't need a college degree to know. Uh, And if I use those kind of words, I explain them. But look at what's happening here in verse 11, chapter 9, verse 11. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. I love that line. We'll talk about it more in a minute. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. Verse 14, then the Lord will appear over them. His arrow will flash like lightning. The sovereign will sound the trumpet. He will march in storms of the south. Yes, it's poetic language. Follow it. And the Lord Almighty will shield them. They will destroy and overcome with sling stones. They will drink and roar as wine, for they will be a full like a bowl. And I love this line. Used for sprinkling the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them on that day as the flock of his people. Here's the line I love, excuse me. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young man thrive and new wine the young woman. God wants you, according to verse 14, to sparkle. Now, I know some little girls in our presence that like blingy things. I mean, Zuri has this really cool purse, right? Or it's a notebook that has the sparkly things on it. And you go one way, it's a heart. You go another way, something else. Yeah. And, and some of you like blingy things. You know, it may be jewelry if you're a lady. Some men do as well. I mean, I, I, you know, some of you like sparkly things. I love that kind of snow that when it falls and the light catches it just right. You know, the real itty-bitty little snow, not the big fat flakes. And the light catches, it's like sparkling diamonds falling from the sky. I love that. But do you hear here what God says? God wants you to sparkle. Your life to be so blessed, you to be so attractive, it's like people have to do a double take. Whoa, what's that? That guy's like sparkly. Did you see that guy? But before you get to the sparkle part, go back to verse 12. Remember God's saying to his people, you've been judged I'm restoring you. I'm going to keep watch in verse 8. But look at verse 12. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. I couldn't help think about that line, prisoners of hope, as Jessica was singing about resting. That if I'm going to be a prisoner of anything, oh, that it would be said of me that I would be a prisoner of the hope of Jesus Christ and His blood And his power. Amen? That I have this hope that is alive within me. That no matter what happens to me, Jesus is with me. No matter what circumstances befall me, I know he's going to take care of me and lead me through. He's my rock. He's my fortress. 
God says at the end of that verse 12, even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. God is saying, when I conquer these nations on your behalf, when I restore your kingdom, I'm going to give you more than you lost. I'm going to bless you more than you knew before is what God is saying to them through this poetic language in verses 11 through 17. Your question there is how has God rejoiced with me? Because God says to him, I, I'm, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to be joyful about the way I've blessed you because I know you'll be joyful. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to make you sparkle. So if you think about your life and think about all that God has done for you, could you get a little excited about the fact that God is excited for what he's done for you? Do you know that God wants to bless you? Do you know that God wants to give you joy? And that when you enjoy a relationship you have, you enjoy something even simple. You know those moments when you walk outside and you go, wow, what a beautiful day. Thank you, God. That that brings joy to God. It's creator. When you enjoy a relationship with someone else and see someone you love excel and you think, man, look at that. Look how great they're doing. God himself rejoices at your joy. That's another area where you ought to do some homework and write yourself a list. What God has done for you. Let's look at chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 3. They don't always get chapter, um, you know, breaks just right, but the commentators agree, and you can see even by the way the way the Bible translators have written it, that there's a change that takes place from more of the poetic type, um, uh, you know, structure of our sentences in the end of chapter 11, verse 3, to back to paragraph style, and uh, the narrative of verse 4. And so there's these common themes in chapter 10 and chapter 11, and it's this idea of sheep and a shepherd. But what it's about is about leadership. It's talking about the shepherd, Jesus, and it's talking about under-shepherds, like the priests in those days, the leaders in those days, pastors and church leaders today. And so the fact that God is the shepherd, but he's entrusted shepherding and serving to others as well. Look at chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. He says, Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It is the Lord who makes the storm clouds. He gives showers of rain to men and the plants of the field to everyone. The idols speak deceit. Diviners see visions that lie. They tell dreams that are false. They give comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wander like sheep, oppressed for lack of a shepherd. So structurally, what this is, is an opening exhortation. This is the introduction to this little subsection in the book of Zechariah. This is the setup, kind of like my story about my dad and when I grew in respect for him. That was the introduction to everything that's going to follow here. And so in this section, this is the introduction. He's saying, here's God's power, but there's also false gods. And the people are going to follow those false gods. What did it say in the end of verse 2? Like people wander like sheep, oppressed for lack of a shepherd. So he introduces his idea that's going to follow in verse 3 through verse 12. Verse 3 through verse 12 is about who's going to care for God's people. Uh, we'll, we'll just jump in and read a little bit of it. 
Verse 3, my anger burns against the shepherds. Notice it's a little s. And I will punish the leaders for the Lord Almighty will care for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like a proud horse in battle. Well, if we were going to guess why God's anger was going to burn against his shepherd, do you think it's because they weren't doing their job or they led God's people astray? God says, I'm going to get you ready like a horse for battle, but they haven't done it. Verse 4, from Judah will come the cornerstone, from his tent peg, his battle bow, and every rule. In other words, I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to prepare them. And on and on and on he goes. And let's make that point there. That's your fourth point on your outline. And that is God shepherds his people. God shepherds his people. So God's calling out the shepherds of his people that have failed. And he's introducing the idea again that I'm going to give a shepherd that will not fail. Look at verse 12, Zechariah 10, 12. I will strengthen them in the Lord, and in his name they will walk, declares the Lord. So God says, I'm going to strengthen the people that haven't done well, the shepherds and the sheep, the people that are common folks that are not in leadership roles. And I'm going to take care of them. Let's look in chapter 11, verse 1, 2, and 3. Open your doors, O Lebanon, so that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O pines, for the cedar has fallen. The stately trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan. The dense forest has been cut down. Listen to the wail of the shepherds. Their rich pastures are destroyed. Listen to the roar of the lions. The lush thicket of the Jordan is ruined. So you have these places, Lebanon grows cedar trees. Even now, the flag of Lebanon has a cedar tree on it. And then you hear about oaks, and then you hear about forests being cut down and uh, pastures being destroyed. And you don't have to know all those places to see that this is a picture of God's judgment. This is a conclusion to this short passage in which God is saying, again, I'm going to judge these other people. And I'm going to restore you. So your question of application here is, who will guide me? God says, I'm going to shepherd my people, and who will guide me? Maybe you need to mark out the word will and write does. Who does guide me? Because we know that God will guide us. He says he will. He says that if any of us lacks wisdom, that we should ask him who gives generously without reproach. He says if we've got any burdens, we should come to him because his burden is easy and and it's light. And he's going to care for us and show us the way. Again and again through scripture, God tells us he will guide us. But our problem most of the time is that we don't turn to God. We try to do things our own way, right? Do we get our guidance from a certain television station, a certain blogger? a certain friend, our own mind? Or do we get our guidance from God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible, and through brothers and sisters in Christ? Let's come to our final point this morning, and that's that God warns His people. So in the midst of all this, because God loves us, He warns us again. This is not unlike a parent telling a child something not to do. Don't touch that. It's hot. If the ball goes out in the street, don't run after the ball. Stop and look both ways first to make sure no car's coming. 
you could get hurt. These are the warnings we give our children, and God warns us here because he loves us. What's it say in verse 4? Zechariah 11.4, this is what the Lord my God says, pasture the flock marked for slaughter. Uh-oh. Their buyers slaughter them and go unpunished. Those who sell them say, praise the Lord, I am rich. I own shepherds, their own shepherds do not spare them. For I will no longer have pity on the people of the land, declares the Lord. I will hand everyone over to his neighbor and his king. They will oppress the land and I will not rescue them from their hands. So we've had these good pictures and good ideas of God's relationship with his people and his rule over all people. But then you come back with this warning against these bad shepherds. And God says, I'm going to deal with them. Skip down to verse 15. Then the Lord said to me, take again the equipment of the foolish shepherd. For I am going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of the choice sheep, tearing off their hooves. Wow, that sounds pretty ugly. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. In other words, he's going to be judged. His arm and his right eye, symbolic. May his arm be completely weathered, his right eye totally blinded. So this isn't a nice picture to end a sermon on, is it? Wow. Okay, God... If somebody does your people wrong, you're going to cause some serious harm to him. And some of us want to go, "Um, why don't we see that today? Maybe we do see it today, just not quite in the way of lopping off an arm or putting out an eye. Your question there is, what should I beware of? Many of us are in some sort of leadership role. If you are a parent... You are charged with shepherding your children's heart. If you are in authority over anybody at your workplace, co-workers, you are charged with shepherding them in their task. If you are a volunteer in our church, whether you work with Awanas on Wednesday night or teach Sunday school or work in the nursery, you are charged with shepherding those children for that time. Brothers and sisters, all of us probably, if you're an adult, have some degree of shepherding and leadership in our purview in our life. And brothers and sisters, this is a warning to us to take care in the manner in which we shepherd because God cares about His people. And He loves them. And he wants us to love them the right way like he does. Unless you get worried and freak out and you say, how in the world am I going to do that? Because I'm sinful and I'm not God. Let me remind us of our scripture memory verse for the month. Because our scripture memory verse for the month calls to our mind again how we can do something that is outside of our own power and ability. Let's say it together. Zechariah 4, 6. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Zechariah 4, 6. Let's pray.
God our Father, there are things in life that we are not supposed to be able to do on our own. Help us be reminded of that. There are times when you put us in situations in which we have to call on you. That we don't have enough wisdom, we don't have enough knowledge, we don't have enough patience, we don't have enough strength, we don't have enough perseverance, we don't have enough faith, we don't have enough hope. Whatever it is, God, would we be reminded that it's not by our might or power to work those things up, but it's by your Spirit that because of our personal relationship with Jesus who saved us from our sins, that you've given us the Holy Spirit to live within us, and it's by that same Spirit that you give us the ability to do everything you've called us to do, including be a shepherd or exercise leadership over others. So God, our Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you've given us Jesus to save us. We pray that if there's any person here that has recognized their own sinfulness today and hasn't trusted Christ as their Savior, they'd make that decision today. And they'd have such courage to make it known to us that we might rejoice with them. God, that we pray for any of the rest of us that know you as our Savior but have wandered away, that we would come back. We would be restored because of your love for us. We thank you, God, for Zechariah and what we've learned through his writing. So old, yet so new and practical even for today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody says, Amen.